Section 59 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part 2. In the second period, the Alexandrian leader was Cyril, nephew of Theophilus, who had succeeded him as bishop in 412. The Byzantine bishop was Nestorius, who succeeded Sicinius in 428. Both of these prelates were more distinctly theological controversialists than were the chiefs in the last encounter. But theology apart, they succeeded to all the difficulties in church and state that had beset their predecessors, and neither of them was gifted with forbearance and tact. Cyril's episcopate began with violent conflicts between Christians and Jews, in which the ecclesiastical power came into collision with the civil. The story is well known how the bishop canonized a turbulent monk who had met his end in the anti-Jewish brawls, how the prefect, Orestes, opposed him in this and other high-handed acts, and fell a victim to the Alexandrian mob. The murder of Hypatia in 415 is not perhaps to be laid directly to Cyril's charge, but it illustrates the attitude of anti-pagan fanaticism towards the noblest representatives of Hellenic culture. Perhaps we may see here the effects of the policy of Theophilus when he stirred up the more ignorant of the monks to chase away or to destroy those more capable of philosophic views. The monks were indeed becoming a more and more uncontrollable element in the situation. Cyril allied himself with a very powerful person, the Archimandrite Senuti, who plays a large part in the history of Egyptian monasticism and also in the Monophysite schism. At present he was orthodox, or rather his views were those that had not yet been differentiated from orthodoxy, and his zeal was shown chiefly in organizing raids on idols, temples, and pagan priests, and in attacks, less reprehensible perhaps, but no more respectful of private property, on the goods of wealthy landowners who defrauded and oppressed the poor. Nestorius came from Isauria. His education had been in Antioch, and the doctrines with which his name is associated are those of the great Antiochene school carried to their logical and practical conclusions. But this association has a pathetic and almost a grotesque interest. Much labor has of recent years been devoted to the task of ascertaining what Nestorius actually preached and wrote, and the result may be to acquit him of many of the extravagances imputed to him by his opponents. To put the case rather crudely, experts have contended that Nestorius was not a Nestorian. He seems to have been a harsh and unpleasant man, though capable of acquiring friends, intolerant of doctrinal eccentricities other than his own. He made it his mission to prevent men from assigning the attributes of humanity to the deity, and boldly took the consequences of his position. Like Chrysostom, he suffered from the proximity and active ecclesiastical interest of the imperial family. When Nestorius became bishop of Constantinople in 428, the emperor Theodosius II was in the twenty-seventh year of his age and the twentieth of his reign. 
though his character and abilities offer in some respects a favorable comparison with those of his father, he suffered, partly through his education, from a too narrowly theological outlook on his empire and its duties. For fourteen years a leading part in all matters, especially ecclesiastical, had been taken by his elder sister, Pocheria, who had superintended his education and seems to have maintained a jealous regard for her own influence. The influence was at times more or less thwarted by her sister-in-law, Eudokia, the clever Athenian lady whom she had herself induced Theodosius to take in marriage. Nestorius had somehow incurred the enmity of Pulcheria. The cause is too deeply buried in the dirt of court scandal to be disinterred. Eudokia, though she is often in opposition to her sister-in-law, does not seem to have had any leanings to the party of Nestorius, and in the end, as we shall see, she took a much stronger line against it than did Pulcheria. But both ladies, in addition to personal feelings, had decided theological leanings, and to these the Alexandrians were able to appeal. The theological principles of Cyril were those of the Alexandrian school. To him it seemed that the doctrine of the incarnation of the Logos is impugned by any hesitation to assign the attributes of humanity to the divine Christ. It was this theological principle which was the cause, or at least the pretext, of his first attack on Nestorius. The distinctions between the Alexandrian and Antiochian schools have their roots far back in the history of theological ideas. One of the main differences lies in the preference by the Alexandrians for allegorical modes of interpreting scripture, while the Antiochians preferred, in the first instance at least, a more literal method. This is not unnatural so far as Alexandria is concerned. That city had seen the first attempt at amalgamation of Jewish and Hellenic conceptions by the solvent force of figure and symbolism, while underneath there worked the mind of primeval Egypt. The speculations of Philo and his successors, both Christian and pagan, carried on the tradition into Orthodox theology. The Christology of Alexandria had produced the homoousios, and now it regarded that term as needing further development, as pointing to an entire union, henousis, of divine and human in the nature of Christ, beyond any conjunction, sunaphea, which seemed to admit a possible duality. On the other side, the Antiochian school is well represented by Theodore of Mopsuestia, the friend of Chrysostom, and the teacher, whether directly or indirectly, of Nestorius. He was a learned man and a great commentator, who insisted on the need of historical and literary studies in elucidating Holy Scripture. His eminence in this respect is to be seen in the fact that we often find him cited in quite recent commentaries. In his Christology he held that the union of the divine and the human in the person of Jesus was moral rather than physical or dynamical, katudokian rather than katusian or katanergeian. He was, however, very careful to avoid the deduction that the relation of divine and human was similar in kind, though different in degree, in Christ and in his followers. 
the actions and qualities ascribed to Christ as man, and particularly his birth, sufferings, and death, were not to be attributed to the deity without some qualifying phrase. This question might have seemed to be one of purely academic interest if it had not obtained an excellent catchword which appealed to the popular mind, the title of Theotokos, Mother of God as applied to the Virgin Mary, vehemently asserted by the Alexandrians, rejected or accepted with many qualifications by the Antiochines. The fierceness of the battle over this word suggests analogies and associations which are easily exaggerated. In some sermons preached on behalf of the Alexandrian view, there are remarks which seem to foreshadow the virgin cult in medieval and modern times, and the great glory of Cyril, as we find in superscriptions of his works, was that of being the chief advocate of the Theotokos. Again, and this is a more important point, and one that will meet us again, both the word and the conception could be interpreted in harmony with one of the strongest elements in revived paganism. The worship of a maternal deity, such as seems to have prevailed widely in the earliest civilizations of Mediterranean lands, had again come to the fore in the last conflict of paganism with Christianity. The mysteries of Isis and of Kibele were widespread. Julian wrote a mystic treatise in honor of the mother of the gods, and as he blames the Christians for applying the term mother of God to the Virgin Mary, he seems here to be following his ordinary policy of strengthening Hellenism on its devotional side by bringing in such elements from Christianity as might be found compatible with it. The reverse process, by which Christianity among both the educated and the uneducated was assimilating pagan ideas, was of course going on at the same time, consciously in some quarters, unconsciously in others. But it would be a mistake to look on the Nestorian controversy as chiefly, or even as greatly, connected with the honor of the Virgin. Nestorius himself, in one of his sayings, probably uttered in a testy mood, protested, anyhow, don't make the virgin a goddess. But this is, I believe, almost the only utterance of the kind during the controversy. Generally speaking, on its speculative side, the controversy was Christological. The Nicene Fathers had finally pronounced on the relation of the Father to the Divine Logos, but within the limits of orthodoxy there was room for a difference as to the relation of the Logos to the human Christ. Some, on the Antiochene side, dreaded lest the idea of the humanity should be entirely merged in that of the Logos. Others, leaning towards Alexandria, would avoid any contamination of the Logos by the associations of humanity. Meantime, the unphilosophical minds that took part in the dispute imagined in a vague way that it was possible for human beings to commit the crime of literally confusing the nature of the deity or of cutting Christ in pieces. The position of Nestorius himself and of those who followed him most closely is summarized in a saying of his that was often quoted and oftener misquoted. I cannot speak of God as being two or three months old. 
he regarded it as impiety to attribute to a person of the Trinity the acts and accidents of human, still more, of infant life. The Alexandrians, on the other hand, considered this view as virtually implying the existence of two Christs, a divine and a human. Naturally, the opponents made no efforts to understand one another's position, and if they had, their efforts could hardly have been successful. During this unhappy century, the mind of man had gone hopelessly astray as to its limitations. Intellectual courage had survived intellectual contact with facts, but that courage was often directed against chimeras. The Pope of Rome at this juncture was Celestine I, 422-432. He seems to have been a conscientious and active ruler, a strict disciplinarian, yet averse to extreme rigor in dealing with delinquents. As we have already said, in this conflict Rome is not on the side of Constantinople and Antioch, but on that of Alexandria. Among the many reasons that may be assigned for the change, two considerations are prominent. First, that the relations between the sees of Rome and of Constantinople had been somewhat strained through rival claims to ecclesiastical supremacy in the regions of Illyria, and, secondly, that Celestine was a devoted admirer of Augustine and anxious to put down the Pelagian heresy. Nestorius, we may safely say, was not himself a Pelagian. In some, at least, of his extant discourses he strongly opposes that teaching. But it is clear that the most eminent Antiochene theologians were not so pronounced as was Augustine in their doctrine of original sin and of predestination. Theodore of Mopsuestia was accused of the same tendency, though he avoided the heretical deductions from his principles, and Nestorius himself once wrote a sympathetic letter, though the obscurity of the text makes it doubtful as evidence, to Caelestius, the notable follower of Pelagius. Again, a few years before our present date, at the Council of Carthage, 426, a monk named Leporius of Marseilles, who had been called a Nestorian before Nestorius, was condemned as a Pelagian. The Antiochene See was more definitely than it had previously been on the side of Constantinople. It was now occupied by a certain John, who plays an ambiguous part, but seems to have been favorable to Nestorius. But the most eminent person on this side was Theodoret, bishop of Cyrus in the province of Euphratensis, a learned theologian, a good fighter, and a man of generous impulses, though he did not keep by his friend Nestorius to the bitter end. In these eastern bishops, we see a growing jealousy of the overweening power of Alexandria. The Church of Edessa, which had, generally speaking, lived a life apart, was drawn into the controversy. The bishop Robulus, though not inclined to urge the adoption of the disputed terms, took the anti-Nestorian side. His successor, however, Ibas, 435, upheld the Nestorian position and retained for centuries the reverence of the Nestorian Christians of the East. 
To take up briefly the main events of the controversy, it was most probably during the Christmas festival of the year 428, or else early in 429, that Proclus, bishop of Cyzicus, but resident at Constantinople, preached a sermon in which he used and expounded the term Theotokos. Nestorius replied to this discourse by another in which he warned the people to distinguish between the divine word and the temple in which the deity dwelt, and to avoid saying without qualifications that God was born of Mary. Nestorius seems to have been more guarded in his language than some of his clergy, especially a priest called Anastasius, who condemned the word Theotokos altogether, and even denounced as heretics those who used it. It is extremely difficult to determine how widely the Antiochian or Nestorian view prevailed, and whether it had yet reached Egypt, and on this question depends the conviction or acquittal of Cyril in regard to the charge of aggressive violence generally brought against him. In the Easter of 429, he issued an encyclical to the Egyptian monks, warning them against the dangers ahead. Men were teaching doctrines, he said, which would bring Christ down to the level of ordinary humanity. Soon after, he wrote a long letter to the emperor, image of God on earth, against heresies in general and the new one, with which, however, he does not couple the name of Nestorius in particular. He followed this up by two very long treatises to the most pious princesses, Pocheria and her sisters, in which he cites many fathers to justify the term Theotokos, and makes out that the new heretics would assert two Christs. The appeal to the ladies does not seem to have pleased Theodosius, who resented Cyril's use of the discord in the imperial family. Cyril, when once he had begun, spared no pains to succeed. He had agents in Constantinople and adherents whom, at much trouble and expense, he had attached to his cause. Especially he had the support of a large following among the monks. We have his letters, written both to Nestorius himself and to Celestine, Bishop of Rome. In all of them he takes the ground of one having authority, of one also who, in spite of personal affection for Nestorius as a man, is bound to consider the supreme interests of the truth. Nestorius in turn eulogizes Christian Epiakia, a grace in which he does not himself seem to have excelled, but maintains an independent bearing. He somewhat superfluously accuses Cyril of ignorance of the Nicene Creed, and reassures him as to the satisfactory state of the church in Constantinople. Nestorius was meantime in correspondence with Celestine on another matter. Certain bishops from the West, accused of heresy, had come to Constantinople. How was he to deal with them? He had to write a second time before a rather curt answer came, that of course they were heretics, and so was Nestorius himself. They are known from other sources to have been Pelagians. Cyril had by this time sent to Rome a Latin translation of the communications that had passed between him and Nestorius with regard to the whole Christological question. 
A synod was consequently held at Rome, which approved of Cyril's actions and position, and the Pope wrote to the clergy of Constantinople, as well as to Cyril and to Nestorius himself. Ten days were given to Nestorius to make a satisfactory explanation, after which he and those holding with him were to be held excommunicated. Letters announcing this decision were sent to the bishops of Antioch, Jerusalem, Thessalonica, and Philippi. To Cyril the Pope delegated the power to take necessary action against Nestorius and his followers. In a synod held at Alexandria, a series of propositions condemnatory of the doctrine taught by Nestorius and insisting on that of the physical union, Henusus Fusicae, were drawn up. In consequence of these actions, Nestorius, urged by John of Antioch, Theodorus of Cyrus, and others, made certain explanations so as to tolerate the figurative use of the word Theotokos. Footnote 1. Id est, in accordance with the union of the two natures in Christ, even during mortal life. End of footnote but he stood his ground as to the main principles and issued, with the support of his adherents, a list of counter-anathemas to those of Cyril. It may seem strange that local councils and leading bishops or patriarchs should have gone so far without insisting on a general council. One person evidently took this view, the emperor Theodosius himself. The builder of the Theodosian Wall and the promulgator of the Theodosian Code can hardly have been the mere weakling that some historians would paint him. He seems to have been a man of some energy and love of fair play, though he had not the strength to carry out a policy to the end. Now, however, jointly with his cousin Valentinian, he issued a writ summoning eastern and western bishops to a council to be held the following Whitsuntide, 431, at Ephesus. He did not attempt to go himself, but he sent as his emissary the Count Candidianus to keep order by military force if necessary, and especially to prevent monks and laymen from intruding. Pope Celestine sent two deputies instructed to act along with Cyril. Cyril himself went largely accompanied. Among his monastic followers was the wild ascetic Sanuti of Panopolis already mentioned, though the stories of Sanuti's conduct at the council are not easily brought into accordance with the facts we have. Nestorius and his Constantinopolitan friends went there, but kept at a prudent distance from the Egyptians. John of Antioch and forty Asiatic bishops came likewise, but at slow pace. Their delay, whether accidental or designed, determined the character and events of the council. The weak point about the Council of Ephesus was that the presiding judge and the principal prosecutor were one and the same person, in an assembly which, though supposed to be primarily legislative, had also to exercise judicial functions. From the very first, Nestorius had no chance, and he declined to recognize the authority of the council till all its members were assembled. Cyril was in no mind to allow this plea, and, perhaps, in refusing to wait for the eastern bishops, he overreached himself and brought subsequent trouble on his own head. 
Celestine's delegates had not arrived, but there was no reason to wait for them, as it was known they had been instructed to follow the Alexandrian lead. John of Antioch and the other eastern bishops were, of course, an essential part of the council, but a message of excuse which John had sent was tacitly construed into acquiescence with what might be done before his arrival. Accordingly, in spite of remonstrances from Nestorius, from a good many eastern bishops who had already arrived, and from the imperial commissioners, the council was opened sixteen days after the appointed time, without the Antiochenes or those who were in favor of any kind of compromise with Nestorius. Messengers were sent to Nestorius, who refused to attend. It was the work of one day, the first session of the council, to condemn him and deprive him of his see. This was done on the testimony of his letters, his reported speeches, and his rejection of the messengers from the council. One hundred and ninety-eight bishops signed these decrees. The populace of Ephesus received the result with wild enthusiasm and gave the champions of the Theotokes an ovation on their way to their lodgings. Perhaps it is not mere fanciful analogy to recall the two hours shouting of an earlier city mob, Great Artemis of the Ephesians. Five days afterwards, John of Antioch arrived. He had with him comparatively few bishops, and when he was joined by the Nestorians, the number of his party only amounted to forty-three. There seems a touch of irony in the assertion which he made afterwards that the reason of his scanty numbers was to be found in his strict injunctions to follow out the emperor's directions. Similarly, when he justifies the delay by the necessity that the bishops should officiate in their churches on the first Sunday after Easter, we may seem to have a covert hit at Cyril's large numbers who found no difficulty in absenting themselves from their flocks. From the first, John took his stance against the acts of Cyril. He rejected the communications of the council and joined forces with Nestorius. The imperial officials afforded him protection and support. In the Conciliabulum, as his assembly was contemptuously called, Cyril and Memnon of Ephesus were in their turn deprived and excommunicated. Meantime, the original council, now joined by delegates from Rome, continued its sessions, deposed John and all his adherents, and continued to pass decrees against the Pelagians and other heretics. Whether or no the precise articles anathematizing Nestorius, which had been drawn up at Alexandria, were passed by the council is a disputed matter and one of inferior importance. Their sense was certainly maintained, and they were answered by counter-anathematisms on the other side. The situation was becoming intolerable. Two rival assemblies of bitterly hostile factions were sitting in conclave through the sultry days of an eastern summer in a city always given to turbulence and now stirred up by long and eloquent discourses such as a Greek populace ever loved to hear. Count Candidianus and the other imperial delegates had a hard task. He had, after the first session, torn down the placards declaring the deposition of Nestorius. 
he tried to prevent the Egyptian party from preaching inflammatory sermons and from communicating the fever of controversy to Constantinople. This, however, he could not do, as Cyril found means of corresponding with the monks of Constantinople. The emperor himself was hardly equal to the emergency. The difficulty as to Nestorius was partly removed by the offer of Nestorius himself to retire to a monastery. With regard to the other leaders, Cyril and Memnon were for a time imprisoned. The emperor received embassies from both sides and finally decided to maintain the decisions of both councils. Maximian, a priest of Constantinople, was appointed to the vacant see of that city. Then Cyril and Memnon were liberated and restored to their sees, and the remaining members of the council were bidden to return home unless they could first find some means of accommodation with the Orientals. The means by which the emperor's partial change of front and the yet more clearly marked prevalence of anti-Nestorian feeling at court were brought about can only be brought to light by untangling a most involved skein of ecclesiastical diplomacy. From a letter of one of Cyril's agents, as well as from the recently published account of Nestorius himself, there was a profuse distribution of gratitudes among notable persons, including the princesses themselves. But Cyril appealed to zeal as well as to avarice. It would appear that a good many people in Constantinople were favorable to Nestorius, but that the clergy and the monks were generally against him. The union between Egyptians and Orientals was brought to pass sooner than we might have expected. It was based on an explanation not wholly unlike that urged on Nestorius by John of Antioch near the beginning of the difficulties, an acknowledgment of two natures united into one, duo fuseon henusus, and mientento theofusen cesarcomenen, with a recognition in virtue of the union of the propriety of the term theotokos. It was a triumph for Cyril, but some of the most independent of his opponents still held out, especially Theodoret, the best theologian of the party and the most faithful a slight distinction to his friends, refused to be included in an arrangement which did not restore all the sees of the dispossessed bishops to their rightful occupants. It was only to a special decree of the emperor enforcing ecclesiastical agreement in the east that he gave at last a qualified assent. But the indignant protest widely raised against Alexandrian ambition was expressed in a playful letter which he wrote after Cyril's death in 444, in which, along with more charitable wishes that we might expect for the final judgment on his soul, he recommends that a large stone be placed over the grave to keep quiet the disturber who had now gone to propagate strange doctrines among the shades below. The last efforts of Cyril had been towards the condemnation of the great commentator, the father of Antiochene philosophy, Theodore of Mopsuestia. The reverence in which the memory of Theodore was held caused the scheme to fail, only to be renewed with baneful consequences by the Emperor Justinian. End of section 59